0: So, poetry doesn't come naturally to Americans. We aren't really known for our poets, nor are we known for our appreciation of good poems. Now Poetry has some place in our lives, perhaps in the early days of a blossoming romance, sometimes in formal ceremonies like weddings and funerals, but it certainly isn't our bread and butter. We'd much rather prefer a novel. And that's a problem, really, because the Bible is filled with poetry. You can't understand the Bible without understanding poetry. Perhaps even more troubling, you can't love the Bible without loving poetry. And one of the stickiest obstacles in the first reading of the Bible is how frequently the story is interrupted by song. It's like a musical, honestly. All of a sudden, the action stops and all the characters burst into chorus. Meanwhile, most readers are half inclined to flip the page or shut the book altogether. But you can't do that because the poetry is there on purpose. And the first thing I want to do this morning is to explain that purpose because it has everything to do with the story of Jesus. Jesus. One of the most frustrating aspects of biblical poetry is that it rarely has something new to contribute to the story. It's repetitive. It's redundant. And that's a big deal, because back then they didn't have hardly any paper, and ink was expensive. So you might ask yourself, why waste my time and your time telling me all over again what just happened in different words? And that would be an excellent question. Let me give you an example to glance at. Turn with me to Exodus 14. Exodus 14. We don't have time to read it all because it's a long story, but glance at the passage while I give you a quick summary. The people of Israel who had been For years and years, slaves of the Egyptian people had just been freed from slavery by the edict of the Pharaoh, whose kingdom had just been ransacked and plundered because of the mighty work of God. And as the people of Israel, now free as a bird and filthy rich, were making their way to the promised land, Pharaoh had second thoughts. So he gathered his armies and made chase. Now God isn't worried about this at all, but the people of Israel are panicked. They're stuck between the greatest army in the world and a huge body of water. And just then, God moves miraculously. He splits the waters in two with huge walls of water on either side of a wide passage through the heart of the Red Sea. The people of Israel, awestruck by the might of God, make their way across the sea on dry land. It gets better. Pharaoh leads his armies in chase. And they make their way to the center of this dry passage just as the people of Israel cross to the other side. And at that moment, God allows the raging waters to fall upon the army of Egypt. And Pharaoh's army is drowned in a moment. It's a great story. One of the best, really. And just at the moment when you expect the next chapter of the story, the people of Israel break out in song and listen to a few of their words. They say, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. And again, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Now, let me ask you an important question Do these lines give us any new information? Do they further the plot in any way? No. No, this song repeats the action of Exodus 14. It's there to draw our attention back to what just happened. Why? What is the purpose of Exodus 15? Look back at the song, but this time start it from the beginning. I will sing to the Lord... For He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. Skip down to verse 11. Who is like You, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like You, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, and then focus your attention on the last line. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, does this poem give us any new information about the plot of the story? Does it further the plot in any way? No. So why is it here? Exodus 15 teaches us it exists to teach us the meaning of Exodus 14. The song of the people of Israel exists to teach us the meaning of their rescue. We knew. We already knew that the people of Israel were safe safe on the other side and that their enemies were crushed by the waters. We knew all of this. But we didn't know what it meant. We didn't know that all of this was living, breathing proof that the Lord had become Israel's salvation We didn't know that the rescue of the slaves of Egypt was living, breathing proof that the Lord would reign forever and ever. And that he would lead his people towards steadfast love, that he would redeem them and establish them and crush their enemies forever. We knew that God saved the people of Israel, but we didn't yet know why God saved the people of Israel. That's what poetry does in the Bible. Poetry answers the question, why? Poetry answers the question, yes, but what does it all mean? Now, the reason I bring this up is because the story of Jesus begins with poetry. Luke's gospel rests upon a foundation of poetry. Nearly every scene in the first few chapters is interrupted by song, and that's on purpose. You must read them carefully, because if you ignore these songs, you cannot understand the birth of Jesus. Because these songs answer the question, why? My wife and I both began following Christ as adults. Yet we were both exposed to Christmas music from a very young age. We sang songs like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and O Holy Night from youth. Now, there's a real irony there. Because for years I sang these words, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. And I sang these words for years as a rebel and a fool and a wretched sinner. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall so come to thee, O Israel. I sang those words every Christmas season for years and then one day the Holy Spirit ignited my heart into affection for Christ. God awoke my heart from death and I longed for the coming kingdom for the first time. And since that moment, whether I'm singing in chorus with the saints like this morning or whether I'm wandering through a department store, my heart cries out with longing when I hear the melody of that song. Joy of the deepest and most eternal sort fills my heart when I hear and sing and read these words, which I've known since I was a child. That rich moment, that profound moment when the words of Christmas songs have new and immortal meaning. I want the Spirit to foster that moment in your heart when you read the words of Mary the mother of God. I'm sorry, the mother of Jesus, who sings with joy of the coming Christ. I want the Spirit to foster that moment in your heart when you read the salvation song of Zechariah, the old man priest whose son will pave the way of the Lord. I want the Spirit to foster that moment in your heart when you read the words of the chorus of angels who cry glory to shepherds in a field. And I want the Spirit to foster that moment in your heart when you read the words of Simeon, the dying prophet, who may now depart in peace, having seen the redemption of Israel. These words you and I have likely read every Christmas for years. Yet their meaning is deep and profound. And these words will teach us the significance of our own rescue and the only right response to that rescue. These songs teach us the why of Jesus' birth. They teach us the significance of the manger, the profound meaning of the virgin birth. They anchor the story of Christ in ancient promises and in the longing of the people of Israel for rescue. These poems are here for a reason, and you can't comprehend the significance and import of the birth of Christ without them. So, let's get into it. Turn with me to the first chapter of Luke. I want to read together. We're going to read the first 45 verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you, have, may, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the, vid, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears the baby in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Okay. So look, I know you've read these words at least 30 times. And when you revisit stories that often, your mind can play a trick on you. You can actually stop reading the words and your eyes can glaze over and at best you replace the words of the story with the concepts you've always known All of a sudden you find yourself remembering that email that you neglected on Friday. Don't let that happen. Because something profound is happening here, right here in this text that you've read every Christmas. And I want to dwell on it. And to do that, you'll have to set aside that instinct and pay careful attention to the details. So let's briefly review the what. And then we can move on to the why. An old righteous priest is serving the Lord in the temple. And an angel appears to him to prophesy that his wife who was barren would have a son. He'd be special. And he would prepare God's people for the Lord. We don't exactly know what that means yet. But sure enough, Elizabeth becomes pregnant in her old age. Six months pass and the same angel visits a young virgin, Mary, who is betrothed to to, to Joseph, a Davidic son. Now that sounds like a big deal but it's not anything special anymore because the kingdom of Israel has fallen for centuries it has been merely a memory this angel tells mary that she'll have a son miraculously not naturally and that he'll be called the son of god and that he'll inherit the throne of david and that his kingdom would never come to an end and all of a sudden we understand what gabriel meant when he said to zachariah's son that zachariah's son would prepare god's people for the lord Jesus, the Son of God, would inherit the throne of David and rule over God's people forever. When Elizabeth and Mary meet, the spirit falls, the baby leaps for joy, and Mary sings. Yes, but what does it all mean? Why would God choose a righteous old priest to father the forerunner of Christ? Why send an angel to announce his birth? And why would God choose a young virgin stepdaughter of David to give birth to the Son of God? And if you step back, there are so many more whys. Why send a son in the first place? Why rescue the people of Israel at all? Why restore the throne of David? Why choose a young lady of social inconsequence when God could have sent His son to a royal family? So many questions, and we're giving we're given a startling, startlingly simple answer. Read Mary's words with me, starting verse forty-six. All right, let's take it line by line. Mary's first words are pure joy, pure exhilaration, unrestrained rejoicing because she knows the significance of this event. And she can hardly wrap her mind around the Lord's decision to choose her. But what is the significance of this event? Why does she shout for joy? Why will every generation call her blessed? And here's where Mary begins to answer all the questions we've asked. First, she says that God's choice to send a Son teaches us that He is mighty. God is mighty. He is mighty to do what? He's mighty to scatter the proud, to bring down the mighty from their thrones and to exalt the humble. God is mighty to rescue the humble, those who fear Him, those who are hungry and weak and look to Him for rescue. That's how God is mighty. He's mighty to save the faithful, His people, And to cast down the proud and the strong who trust in their own strength. All of a sudden, a lot of the wise are answered. Why choose an old man priest and his barren wife? Why choose a virgin of social inconsequence? Why send an angel who stands before the throne of God to the least of these? Because by sending His Son, God is demonstrating His might to save the least of these, the helpless and the hungry and the hopeless. But Mary doesn't stop there. Dwell for a moment on those final lines. He has helped His servant Israel in what? Remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. He has helped Israel. He has helped Israel. He has remembered His mercy as He spoke to our fathers. As he spoke to Abraham. As he spoke to Abraham's offspring. Okay. Okay, I think this is the most important line in the song. And I think it's echoed about 20 times in the book of Luke. Mary's words here have gravity. Because she's connected the birth of Christ to God's promises of mercy. And to Abraham and to all of Abraham's offspring after him. And I don't want to pass over that because I think this is the ultimate answer to the question why. To fully understand what Mary means here, we've got to take a few steps back. Because the book of of Luke is masterful storytelling. And by placing Mary's song here just at the beginning, and by including these final lines, Luke is forcing us to see something huge Literally, of biblical proportions. (laughs) To see it, we've got to focus a bit of our time on Abraham. Abraham's story unfolds at the very beginning of the Bible. For the first few chapters of Genesis, we read about God's brilliant work to create a perfect world. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, enjoyed perfect provision, perfect communion, perfect harmony with creation. No kidding, they lived in paradise and walked every day with God in the afternoon breeze. And that's supposed to sound amazing. Yet we're hardly given a moment to dwell longingly on that perfect scenario before we learn that Adam and Eve threw it all away because they didn't trust God. They broke the world. Sin broke the world. And all has been cursed since that moment. Every thought and intention of the heart of man was violent, And generation after generation died hopeless and helpless apart from God. And then there was Abraham. Abraham was just a guy until God chose him. Until God spoke to him and he spoke back to God. Abraham was just a guy until he was a prophet. And God chose Abraham. And He promised to Abraham a people and a nation and a promised land and, and this is important. An offspring through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was a promise. An unconditional promise made to Abraham. Not because he was righteous, but because God was faithful. In the line of Abraham, the faithful. In the line of Abraham, the prophet. God would one day provide a son who would bless the world. It was a promise. And every faithful generation of his sons remembered that promise and looked to the horizon for the coming son of Abraham, the true and ultimate prophet of God. And generations passed away, longing for the fulfillment of that promise. And it came to pass that all of Abraham's great, 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 great grandchildren were slaves to a wicked people. So God sent Moses, son of Abraham, who spoke the mighty words of God and demonstrated the mighty power of God. God freed the people of Israel by the word and work of Moses. And He gave to His people the priesthood. These lost souls couldn't stand before a holy God. So Moses brought the people the word of God, which established the priesthood. And though it, he knew it was merely a stopgap, Moses looked to the great high priest who would one day come to offer final sacrifice. And he told the people that the blood of bulls wasn't enough to bridge the gap between a broken people and a holy God. But God would send a man like Moses who would rescue His people forever. And generation, passed, generation after generation passed away, longing for the fulfillment of that promise. After decades in the wilderness, the faithful generation crossed over the Jordan into the Promised Land. And for generations, that people spiraled into sin. And then one day, God sent His King. King David, son of Abraham. Rescued the people from their enemies. And He ruled in justice and equity. And He provided for His people in splendor and generosity. And the people looked to King David with joy. Yet David was merely a man, and he too faltered. But God promised to David that one day a son would be born to his line. And he would take up the crown and sit on the throne. And of his kingdom there would be no end. The coming son of David would rescue them from their enemies and provide for them from his bounty. The coming son of David would bring peace, forever peace, to the people of God. And from the day of David's death, the faithful people of God scanned the horizon for His promised Son. And generations passed away, longing for the fulfillment of that promise. And generations were beaten and broken and enslaved and exiled. And the remnant, the faithful sons of Abraham, scanned the horizon for the promised prophet of God, the faithful sons of abraham scan the horizon for the promised great high priest of god and the faithful sons of abraham scan the horizon for the promised son of david king of israel until the day that gabriel was sent to announce the birth of a forerunner i want you to see something here that i think is amazing since the very early church fathers the first three songs in the book of Luke have, been, have become famous. The very early Christians believed them to be so important to the story of Jesus that they gave them names. Mary's song was called the Magnificat. Zechariah's song was called the Benedictus. And the prophet Simeon's song was called the Nunc de I'm sorry if you know Latin. I'm just guessing here. Three hymns around which Christ's birth story revolves, treasured by the church since the very beginning. Do you think it was an accident that these three songs came to God's people through a priest, a prophet, and a daughter of David? Three songs right at the outset of Jesus' story. The song of a prophet who looked forward to the, in hope to the true prophet. The song of a priest who looked forward in hope to the great high priest. And the song of a daughter of David who looked forward in hope to the son of David. Remember the last lines of Mary's song? He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. God has remembered His mercy as He spoke to our fathers. The promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David. God has remembered these promises and is on the move to rescue His people. God is doing it. All the promises of God are realized in this child. That's our answer. That's the answer to the question why. What does it all mean? The priest, the prophet, the virgin, the angels. What does it all mean? It means that God is faithful, and He is mighty, and He is merciful. And it means that all of His promises to rescue His people and to restore the world are fulfilled in this child, Jesus. This child is God's promises, God's faithfulness, God's might, God's mercy, God's love, God's power, God's word and body. This child is the ancient promised prophet. This child is the great high priest. This child is the king of Israel. And this child is a reminder that God is faithful to fulfill his promises always. I can't ignore that. We read, in youth, we read Psalm 77. Uh, and. There's this moment in Psalm 77 that I got to read to you because it's so relevant. In a moment of desperation, this this psalmist cries out, "Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion?" And the birth of Christ says no. He has not forgotten his promise. Amen? As soon as you get that, as soon as you realize what Mary realized when she saw the angel and, and heard the good news, as soon as you realize that God has finally, forever fulfilled his promises in this baby. As soon as you get that this baby, this Son of God, was the answer to all their pleas of deliverance, as generation after generation of God's people cried out under the burden of this broken world, as soon as you understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah who will one day, finally, and forever make right all the wrong and wipe away every tear from your eye, at that moment, the only appropriate response is to sing of the faithfulness of God. At that moment, you must respond to the rescue of God just like Mary did. At that moment, the only appropriate response to the dramatic rescue of God's people is to shout praises to the God who did it. The God who sent. The God who was faithful to redeem His people by the blood of His perfect Son. The God who will establish His throne forever and ever and make peace for His people forever and ever. Sing, church. Sing of the mercies of God, the promises fulfilled, the hope of final deliverance. Dwell on the birth of Jesus and sing of the kingdom coming, the kingdom secured by the blood of our great and mighty and perfect King. Sing of the baby Jesus who came in humility to save His helpless people. Let's sing together alongside Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and the chorus of the angels. Let's sing together with all the generations of the faithful who scan the horizon for the birth of Jesus the Christ and who together with us look forward to His kingdom. Amen? Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.